Love music. Live sport. Talking football with Bill Young and Jerry Collins on Rock Sport Radio. Good evening and welcome to Talking Football across Central Scotland on DAB Digital Radio, online at rocksportradio.co.uk and of course you can listen on your smartphone and your smart speaker. Uh, That's using the TuneIn and the Radiogram apps and if you're so inclined you can watch the programme live. We stream every night Monday to Friday between 6 and 8 on Facebook, on Twitter and on Periscope. Must say hello to Mr Shut Up, Stacey, good to see you bud. Uh, He's in America at the moment and uh, listening to the programme. It was on with us the other week, Stacey. Always good to uh, to see that you're participating, young man. I don't know where you are today. You were in uh, Louisiana, uh, I think, last week or the week before when we spoke to you. Uh, or was it Alabama? It was one of the two, but I don't know where you are this time, so maybe you want to tell us. Uh, my guest this evening is Jerry Collins. We'll hear from him in just a moment. Uh, over the first half hour of the programme, we'll pick over last night's uh, defeat at the hands of Belgium in the Euro uh, 2020 qualifiers. Uh, we will speak to Finnish sports journalist Yanni O. Oivio uh, a wee bit later on. Now, Yanni's going to tell us how Finland rebuilt their national team and how they changed their footballing model. Uh, Maybe we can learn from that. That's if we're prepared to learn from anybody and we're just going to blindly fumble along uh, the way we've been doing for the last 20-odd years. Libby Emerson is back with us tonight. She's from the Back On Side Mental Health Charity. The reason I want to speak to Libby today is it's... uh, World Suicide Prevention Day. It's a very important thing. Young men particularly taking their lives at an alarming rate. Uh, and it kind of links in with what we've been talking about in terms of mental health, which we've been a champion of here on the programme. Uh, I know it's not s- specifically Scottish football, but yesterday uh, would have been the 50th birthday of Gary Speed, who, of course, took his own life. Uh, so we'll talk about that a little bit later on uh, with Libby. Um, we'll speak to Daniel Gray, who's an author and from Nutmeg magazine host. Uh, He's going to talk about really the way that world football has impacted negatively on Scottish football. I suspect we'll be talking about the influx of foreigners that have come into the Scottish game, among many other things. So it's a fairly thoughtful night tonight, Uh, Mr. Collins. So I hope you've got your thoughtful head on. Well, my voice, uh, my voice is all aye, coming aye, back from last week. My aye, voice aye, is aye. coming back again. Aye, aye, I was all that singing, but do you want me? You want me to tell people about <laughs> about your your story? That's right. Just keep it stum. <laughs> no. Good evening, Bill. Good evening. Uh, reaction to last night. Listen, uh, you've had your fun with Mister Horse, but having said that, going back to last week, uh, you were commended by a number of our listeners for springing to the defence of Alfredo Morelos as Mr Horsburgh was laying into him? Well, as I said to Alec off the air, I thought it was a wee bit heavy on him because if you're the manager of a football team, Bill, and I'm the striker, and I'm not very sociable, but I'm the best striker you've got and I bang in the goals and I get I get you what you want, victories, does it matter if he's not sociable? As long as he's doing the job you pay him to do. And I thought, well, wait a minute, Alec, he's... The guy scoring goals, he's the best striker. So because he doesn't socialise or go on social media, that he's not a good guy. So I thought it was a bit heavy. It'll never stop me, and I'm the most unsociable person you'll ever find, as you well know. Mm-hmm, so you know, from that from that point of view, I agree with you for once. Listen, let's go back to last night. Um, 
I don't know where to start, really, to be honest with you. Um, I watched the second half. I listened to the first half because I was driving home. Second half, I watched. And I have to say, there were a couple of little moments where I think we forgot who we were. And there were glimmers where I thought, I can see a wee bit of potential here. But by and large, you know, at the back particular, you know, and, and we... We were woeful, Jerry. We were absolutely woeful. Now, everybody is jumping on Stevie Clark, and Stevie Clark's got to go, you know, after one bad result. Uh, Alec McLeish had the people on him and had to go, blah 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 Now it's Stevie Clark. He had the wrong team selection. See if you're Scotland manager at the minute, no matter who you are, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, in my view. Now... I still think Stevie Clark's the best man for the job. I still think what we need to do is what we'll talk about later on. And I said this last night before the game. I think we need to grow up. We need to accept where we are. And the SFA needs to accept where we are as well. And we need to strip everything back. Now, I've said if it takes another five, six, seven years to do it, and everybody goes, oh, we've waited 21 years Another five, six, seven years is not going to kill us then mm. to get to where we need to go. The general picture of, of countries that are doing successfully now are better than us having stripped things back. It's been a 10-year plan. Now, okay, it'll be a hard 10 years, but can it be any more torturous than being 21 years away from qualifying for a major tournament and then breaking our hearts every time we go into this situation? Let me ask you a question. Take Stevie Clark out of the team as a manager and put him into a Man City team and take Pep Guardiola and put him in charge of the Dashwood team. Who will have more success? Stevie Clark. All day long. Because he's got better players. Correct. So it's down to players. It's not down to managers. Stevie Clark should go. Stevie Clark shouldn't go. Stevie Clark is a man that we want it. Got to give him time. He doesn't have the tools, Bill. I tell you a story um, about 1985 when the late, great Jock Steen, I was fortunate enough to play in the first division team, me and Mr McCabe went over to Holland, and Jock Steen took the training session, and he had a wee talk to us after it, and he said, football is the easiest game in the world, but it's complicated with people trying to do difficult things. All you need is four defenders and a goalkeeper. The rest should be forward-thinking, attack-minded people. Look at the Scotland team last night, Bill, and you tell me the four defenders. Tell me. What, you mean the ones that, that started? Yeah. Well, you had O'Donnell. Right, right, okay, let's analyse O'Donnell. What's his strength? Going forward. Going forward. Can he defend, in my opinion? No, he can't. Can he header? No, he can't. We lost a goal against Russia through O'Donnell. You watch when O'Donnell plays and the way we play. O'Donnell will fire the ball to either Fraser or Forrest and runs beyond them. Yeah. We get caught out again, Russia, because he was backpedalling. He was further up the park than the wide player. He's not a good defender. Charlie Mulgrew, been a great servant, had a great career in football. Get freed for Celtic, because at the time they said his legs had gone. He goes back down south with Blackburn. That's great. That's great. Two or three years at Blackburn, and then he moves on. I think he's at Wigan. Wigan. Right. As a defender, what's Charlie's strength as a player? His strength as a player? Yeah. For me, dead balls. You are a free kick, 25 yards out. If you've not got Griffiths on the park, you want Charlie McGrew for dead ball situations. You can't say, Bill, that, that Charlie McGrew got 
for a corner kick or a set play coming for a wide area that will go and win the header and knock people down. He's not that type of player. He's not a good defender. The boy Cooper, it's his second game. I'll reserve judgment on him because I think... I don't know much about him. All I do right. know is he was selected uh, and nominated for uh, Player of the Year last year for the Championship right. uh, in England. That's as much as I know about well, that you, boy. You know, you know more than me then because I hadn't heard him and I think... He's played two games, but in the two games, what I see and what I hear, you question his defending. He made poor decisions. His decision- yeah, but, but here's the thing, Jerry. just if I can right. stop you for a okay, minute, mate, okay. just very quickly, because right. I think it's relevant, right? Um, you've got a situation where Charlie Mulgrew, who's a left-footed player, is playing in the right of the defence, right. and Cooper, who's a right-footed player, is playing in the left of the yep. defence. Yep. I'm not, I mean, you're a coach, you know, tell me how I that works. We don't understand that, because you always want balance. You want balance. I don't understand the one at all. But just to get back to the point I was going to make, so you've got Cooper, who we don't know about, right? The left-back is Andy Robertson. What's his strength? Going forward and whipping the ball in again. Going forward. I told you the story, Bill. I went to watch him. But that's how much I know about football. I went to watch Andy Robertson at Queen's Park. They get beat 3-2 with Berwick Rangers. I'm watching him as a left-back for a team in England. And I came to the conclusion, he's not a left-back. He's more of a left-wing-back. And then, lo and behold, he goes to Dundee United, then Hull, who play 3-5-2, and it works out, and he, the boy goes on to do wonderful things. But he's not a good defender. So, all of a sudden, Bill, we've got four guys who are in the defence who can't defend. They're no good defenders. The boy Bates, who they bring him out for Hamburg, is a defender. Irrespective if he's not if he's a better player or not a better player than Cooper, that guy is a defender. So if he can defend, why not play him? Bringing the boy Johnny Russell for America, for America, and no playing him, no involving it. It's a joke. It's an absolute joke. No, Stevie Clark knows a lot more about football than I'll ever know. But I think on certain issues, you've got to question. Is that always got? But or? isn't that contradicting what you've just said in terms of when you made the analysis about Guardiola and Steve Clapton and saying this is all he's got? That's what he's got. So, th- I, but it's not totally all he's got because you've just identified areas where there are people that he could have played that you believe would have been stronger than other people no, that I'm he ju- did play. I'm not identifying. I'm just saying that. Well, you're me, saying Bates is a defender. I, I'm only thinking off the top of my head who was on the bench. Bates is on the bench. Who is a defender? Is he a better defender than the other guys that are Was he playing? a better defender than Charlie Mulgrew? Well, I think he is. Well, there you go. Then you've got to but question the management, no, the manager's no, judgment, no, surely. No, because the manager would then say, if it was a, if I'm arguing the manager, he would say, well, in my opinion, Charlie Mulgrew is a better player, better defender than... Can I, can I do what Bates. you do to me and ask you a question? Uh-huh. Right? Here's right. my question to you. Right. The team that was fielded last night... Yeah. Was that a stronger team, in your view, than the one that was fielded against Russia? Uh, I, I think that's difficult because I think that the Scottish players like Kenny McLean okay. and Snodgrass right. are much of a muchness. Right. Then let me ask you. Let me ask you another question. Bar maybe two players. Uh-huh. Do you think that that? Either team were his best, his best eleven, his strongest eleven in both those games. They've got to be because that's what we've got, Bill. That's well, what... well, if if they were the strongest eleven against Russia, why didn't that eleven 
woeful though they were, start against Belgium? Because they probably felt that people played under par. Now, what I'm saying to you is, I watch when Stephen O'Donnell gets the ball, if James Forrest is playing wide right. But here's a, here's a, a fact for you. Right. The average position of Stephen O'Donnell, right, was higher than James Forrest in a larger percentage of the times in the game. He, he, I've just been given that stat by Ewan. Yep. It's true. It's a, Ewan's got the stat and he's just given me it. Well, so he's ahead of James Forrest more <laughs> often than James Forrest is ahead of him. No, I didn't know that. And when I came in, and as we're talking, I'm saying to you that he's not a defender because the, the, way, I, the way I see it, Bill, James Forrest, when he played with Celtic, he played with Celtic with Lustig last year. Lustig would get the ball and fire the ball wide to Forrest. People say to me, I'm talking through whatever. James Forrest, for me, doesn't do it. For me. Because when Lustig would give him the ball, Lustig wouldn't run beyond him. He would stay. So Forrest would shape up the defender. And then, nine times out of ten, he would roll the ball back for Lustig to go back out on the other side. When Stephen O'Donnell plays with Forrest, he fires the ball to Forrest, he then runs beyond him, and Forrest can't then roll the ball back unless he rolls it away back to a centre-back. So then Forrest has got a decision to make. And his decision-making for me on the ball and the attacking areas, unless he's in the opposite third of the park, bearing down and goal, he generally tries to get a shot away. But if he's left with a decision to make, do I run in the park and pass it? Or he's run beyond me. Now, one of the, one of the times again in Russia, he actually run and run and stumbled over the ball. And they counter-attacked his off it. And Stephen O'Donnell's away wider beyond him. I just think it's, for guys that are playing defenders, they don't defend. But you know, Jerry, one of the things that we've one of the things that we've made much of over the last few years is that we've not got enough players playing at the right level. Yet we've got a lot of players that are playing in England in the Premier League just now. That you know, we haven't had that for years and years and years. Now is the Premier League the best league in the world? I don't think it is. I think it's probably the most exciting league in the world, but I don't think it's the best league in the world in terms of quality. But we've got more players playing in Premier League football teams at the moment right. in the Scotland team than we've had for years. So here's the thing, and I put this on social media today, I find it sad that we've used every excuse from we're a small nation to we're not tall enough and everything in between. The fact of the matter is that for me, the infrastructure's wrong. We we take kids to professional football clubs from the age of eight and below, and by the age of 14, a large percentage of them are told, you're never going to be a footballer, son, and they're sickened, and they don't, we lose them to the game. So that's one thing that I think's wrong. The other thing that I think's wrong is, and I know this from experience from watching at various clubs, kids being coached, Sometimes it becomes all about the coaches. But for most of the time, I don't see kids enjoying playing football when they're being coached at clubs these days because it's all about formation, positioning, this, that, the next thing. Where is the natural flair and ability allowed to breathe? 
And that's what I think we need to do. We need to get a balance. It's all become about formations. It's not about talent. It's not about ability. It's not about flair. It's about formations. You play there and that's what you do. And you go back there and you go up there and you don't move from there. And that's what it is. Let kids play. Let them breathe. Let them enjoy the game. And let them do what kids... We were talking last night, Jerry McCabe, Hugh Burns and myself, right? Now, I never played at the same level you guys did. Played semi-pro abroad. But I remember the first time that we were training at the National Stadium, right? And it was with the first team for the very first time. And the best player in the team was buddied with me as my training partner. See, for the next three weeks, I had the best games that I'd ever played for that team. Because... You're learning awful. Yeah. But more than that, my confidence was up that this, you know, he was buddying me and we became friends and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. All of that kind of stuff. You see, now, it's just, I don't know, everything is just homogenised. It's sterile. Do you remember last season, Bill, when the game, um, and I said to you about players, and you said about bringing players, and I said, listen, for me, and it's not because they had the bad games and we get beat with Russia and get beat with Belgium. I said before it, I felt that Alec McLeish should have went back and brought people in like Alan Hutton, who was back in the Villa team at the time, because of the experience that guy's got of playing for Rangers, Tottenham and Villa, could have helped younger fullbacks. And if you take him and play him and the young fullback, if it was O'Donnell, just watch Alan Hutton. Know that he's the greatest player in the world, don't get me wrong, but I tell you what, he's probably a better defender. Just watch how he defends. Watch when we get the ball. If, we, if we've got comfortable possession of the ball, when to go. If you've not got comfortable possession, tuck in. Watching guys that's done it for years, nobody can tell me that John Gregg, Ronnie McKinnon, Billy McNeil and John Clark were good footballers. Because they weren't they? They were good defenders. We don't have that now. It's now they change people. Uh, he's not but doesn't that come back to formations again? Come back to coaching. Yeah, and but back to formations as well, where <laughs> the primary job that a number two did was a defender. It's not anymore in a lot of cases. No. Bill, they call us old dinosaurs now. If you remember that. Yeah, but first... we come from the area where we come from the era, Jerry. If we're dinosaurs. We come from the Jurassic period right. when we used to qualify for major tournaments. Right. I'm going to say to you that the colours dinosaurs, right? So when you go to football, if you come back for a game, Bill, and I say to you, the number three had a good game, you would know right away, ah, the left back did well. Yeah. Or the number four had a good game. The right or, half. Right? Aye. So it's all changed now. And the numbers, all this new bit with numbers, you can wear number 99 and wear what you want. Nobody can identify a player by numbers now. Because it all changes now. And they keep telling you, the game evolving, it's, it's all changing. I'm sorry. The art of defending. Willie Muller was never a good football player. I'll tell you what, he was a fantastic defender. People very seldom get by him. Mm-hmm. And him in the partnership of McLeish, who could defend. And the other thing was, at set plays, he could defend your box and set play. The goalkeeper would... I remember talking to a big guy like years ago, and he would say, Jim Layton would say to me, Anything in the six-yard box, I'll come for it. But see what it says? Use attack it and take the pressure away from me. A big Alec would go in one-headers or, or rugby. They would go and defend. We can't defend set plays now. Mm. Well, I mean, look at last night. We can't defend them, Bill. Look at last night. 
You know, the first three goals all from set plays. <sighs> One of them ours. Criminal. <laughs> Bill, it's criminal. See, when you... I don't know who does it. Stevie Clark is a, is a coach. So I take it Alec Dyer would maybe set the plans out and tell you, corner kick four for Scotland. Bill, remember, you're in the halfway line. You're sitting. If they keep one back, one up, we keep two back. One in front, one behind. So if they knock the ball wide, that we're on top of it. There was no coordination last week with anybody. Got to take a corner kick, well, just gung-ho. People forgot their jobs. Jerry, it's like this zonal marking. What is that all about? Take your man and make sure you're first of the ball, or at least make sure that you put enough pressure on him that you can't get a free header on it. Zonal marking for me is a cop out. It's a cop out because it allows everybody to say, "Well, I thought it was, was him. Was him? I thought it was uh, his." You're right. You know, and that's what I just, you know, you should have t-shirts that wasn't me printed. I don't get it. And, and I'll tell you the other thing I don't get, and I really don't get this one, is how Stephen Naismith, who breaks down in training and can't start for us, is more ready to play Griffiths. than Lee Griffiths. I know. I don't get it. Now, I heard Steve Clark give his explanations. He felt he wasn't right mentally. But then he brings in Stephen Naismith, who wasn't obviously right physically. He said, a major knee injury for most of last season and a hamstring injury this season. Breaks down in training, so doesn't get chosen. Lee Griffiths is in the stand last night watching the game, which, by the way, was attended by 25,500 people, which is 21,000 people lower than went to watch a World Cup uh, warm-up of rugby for uh, Scotland against uh, Georgia at Murrayfield on Friday. Mm-hmm. Because the people are getting cheesed off, Bill. They're getting cheesed off. Can I, can I ask you a question? How much do you think Scotland players get for playing for Scotland? Oh, I haven't got a clue. Couldn't tell you. I remember the days when you played for nothing. Mm-hmm. Back in the 60s, they never got a fee for playing internationals. So I don't know how much they get. You tell me. Nothing. Right, well, there you go then. Nothing. And I, I didn't you, know it was still the same. I thought because no, you'd what, asked me. No, but it wasn't the same. It's changed. Because I listened to Willie Miller. And Willie Miller asked a question to Billy Dodds. Dodds said, what is the fee for an international? He went, oh, it's all changed, Willie. We don't get nothing now. We don't get nothing. Well, they used to not get paid in the 60s, I can tell you that. They never get paid in the 60s. You would get your expenses coming. Yeah, that was was it, yeah. But you never got a a fee for playing and you never got appearance money and stuff like that. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I didn't know that there was a time where that had changed again and now changed back. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, look, with the amount of money that footballers get today, should yeah. that be the motivator for no, them no, to play for, their, no, no. for but, their country? But can you understand maybe why people don't put themselves out? Remember, there was, a, there was a period of time there where managers were falling out with players because players weren't turning up. Is it because they're not getting paid? To well, turn the up? England team donate all their money to charity. Yeah. Is it because players don't get paid? Oh, I'm, I'm not going up there. I'm not wanting to play. But why don't they just say that? <clears throat> why? Why? Do, why doesn't that come out? And why don't we use that as an explanation? 
rather than all this carry on after humiliating defeats where players, you know, storm past the media and don't want to talk to them and say, you know, we're better than that and I don't like getting booed off the park. Nobody likes getting booed off the park and I think it's terrible that we boo players, our own players off the park. Well, they get booed on the park. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no! But at the end of the day, you know... This has got... We can't just keep stumbling along. Let me ask you a question. You see you see Project Brave, right? How successful has Project Brave been? What's Project Brave? You know, with this whole thing about the elite you know, coaching and all the rest of it for the youngsters and, and such like. But, that, but that's all changed as well, because we... Scotland... Scotland put herself into a, a project and, and hired the guy for six years, if you remember. Mark Watty. Yeah. Right? How long did it last? I can't remember. Just under four years. Right. Just under four years. It all changed again. Then he moves on and other people move on. Well, Brian McClare came in and he was there for about five minutes. Then he moved on. And now it's Malky Mackay. What's Malky Mackay doing? Well, why do none of us know what the vision is for Scottish football in terms of development? Do you know? No. Uh, Do you still have... Do you still think you're fairly well, you know, knowledgeable about what's happening in the game in Scotland? I think I do, yeah. I think I do. Right, and you don't know? No, I don't know. And you'll be more knowledgeable about what's happening in the game in Scotland than I will, for definite. But you don't know, I don't know, who does know? Because nobody comes out and says, look guys, this is where we are, this is where we've got to get to, this is how we're going to do it, and this is how long it's going to take us. Do you think Steve Clark? Sorry, I'll rephrase that. What do you think Steve Clark will be doing tonight, Paul? <laughs> Wondering what the hell he's taking on. Correct. He'll be thinking, what have, what have I let myself into? No. If it was me, I know what I'd be doing tonight. I'd be on the first flight. Do you know who's playing tonight? No. You don't? No, I'd, I'd, if it's foreign stuff, I don't. No, it's no foreign stuff. What? What is it? Scotland 21's are playing tonight. Oh, right. Well, they... they, they <laughs> right. No, there's I'm, nothing coming through there. No, no, I'm serious. Right. They, they play Croatia, right? So, if I'm Steve Clark, I'd have played to Croatia. And I'd watch on that team and, and look at the guys. Because you're the man you're ever going to be playing under-21 football. See if you're good enough at that level. And he thinks, wait a minute, you've done more tonight than what he's got. And Mark, what they've done more than... Now, I don't want to single people out, but I'm going to single one guy out. And I think, what did he do in the game? McBurney. What did McBurney do that a young... I don't, I don't even know who's number nine for, for the 21s. But I'm thinking, surely there must be somebody coming through. Fraser Hornby, apparently. Fraser Hornby? Hmm. I thought it was a train deck. That's what I thought as well, but never mind. Who does he play for you? And tell me who he plays for. Rangers, isn't it? Oh, he's uh, out and loan in Belgium, but he's from Everton. Fraser Hornby. Okay. But surely Steve Clark must go and watch, or does he rely on Scott Gemmell and Husty, who take the 21s? Do you think he would say to the two, who played well, who who could step up? Your eyes, your judge. Well, everybody's raving about Billy Gilmer. He's not playing tonight, he's ruled out tonight, but everybody's raving about Billy Gilmer at Chelsea. You know, I, 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 here's here's a, a, a quote, right? This is a quote now from Steve Clark. We looked like we could become a good team. 
Which part? I, I, I just, I don't get it. I'm sorry, I don't like being negative about the national team. I don't want to be negative about the national team, Jerry. But at the end of the day, you see these glib comments and this burying our head in the sand and it's everybody else's fault. A big boy made me. You know, I'm I'm getting really tired of it now. We have got to, we have got to look at where we are. We've got to look realistically at what we could be, and then we've got to find a way of doing it. The model is broken, and you know we've said it, and I've said this on the program time and time again. I'll say it again: the definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing and expect a different outcome. I don't think we'll qualify even going through the Nations League. And I'll tell you why. I watched Bulgaria against England, who look as if we might be playing. It might be Bulgaria. And Bulgaria will beat us. I just think, Bill, that if people are saying, what is the answer? I don't know the answer, but if Steve Clark's going to be the manager, I would like... I would like somebody within the SFA whether it be Stevie Clark or whoever, to go and say, who was your best defenders? Because from middle to front, we seem to do okay. That's the okay part of the team. It's defenders that is a big bugbearer for me. So why did they not go to... Willie Miller's never been involved in international football in the coaching capacity. Never. One of the best defenders we've ever produced. McLeish was his partner, who was the manager... I didn't understand at the time why Big Alec wouldn't say to Willie, we'd like you to come in for the three days we're here and just take sessions with defenders and show them. Nobody does that. Whichever manager comes in, inherits that team and then they put their ideas over the players, which I think is wrong. Because I think, why not go for the best and get the best people to say, I'll show you how to defend. But we don't. So maybe the door should be open to people like Willie Miller. Can I ask a question? A stupid question. But I'm going to ask you anyway. Uh, what do you think a team would do if you actually lined up with two full-backs, three midfield players, and then the forward? Like, aye. What do you think a team would do if you lined up in the old way against them? Well, do you remember the last man to do that? No. Ali McLeod. Ali McLeod played that way with Airdrie. He was Airdrie manager. He lined up the old 2-3-5 formation. People were going, what the... <laughs> but that's what he played. They get beat on the game. I think they played their both that day. They get beat. But he just went back to the old-fashioned the old fashioned ways. But what do you think would happen today I, if you did it? What would happen? Yeah. What do you think that, what do you think that, that teams <clears throat> would think... What, what, would they know how to deal with it? Of course they would, because what would happen is, if you won the kick-off, your two wide players would just push right up the park and you try and get the ball beyond, over the top. You wouldn't play through the midfield. you play over the top. So if you play over the top, you've got two centre-halves, your two wide players would have been top of them, going at them. So it would change. Football's changeable. It's just changed with different formats. 4-2-3-1, 4-4-3. <laughs> but that's what it comes back to again that's what I've told you it's all about formations now it's not about talent it's not about creativity it's not about flair it's not on a lot of occasions about the ability of the individual the ability of the individual shines through doing the job that he does but a lot of the time when you see flair players you don't see their flair you see their ability 
and their ability and their flair are different. Something <coughs> they're not allowed to breathe. No, you're probably. Right. I just I don't I don't get it. I don't, Jerry. Honestly, no, I, well, I, I, well, I, I I can feel I can feel <laughs> the anger building in me as we even talk about it now, because as I say. I don't know what our goal is. I don't know how we're supposed to reach it. I don't know when we're supposed to reach it. You know, but we'll see the Chris Boyd made a great point last night. He said, we haven't hit rock bottom yet. He said, we've still got a way to go and we will hit rock bottom. And he agrees that it's all to do with coaching. It's all to do with formations. He also says that it's stopped being a working class game. Uh, and a lot of it now is because you know young kids can't afford coaching schools and things like that, and and the amount of money it costs for kit and that kind of thing. I mean, I remember, I remember, you know, my dad would have to do three weeks of overtime if I was getting a new pair of football boots. Now I know the world's changed. I know that, mm-hmm. and it's not back to those days. But there's a certain situation going on just now where football, to a degree is now becoming a bit elitist. Has Chris Boyd not got a coaching camp? I don't know. I uh, really don't know. Well, he and he's got a coaching camp. So if he's saying about coaching camps and whatever, and people can't afford it, he's going. And he charges kids to come in. Yeah, no, I, I, you're probably right. You're probably right. My, my, my main bone of contention, Bill, is if you've got the best available on your doorstep and you don't use them there's something far wrong and I don't care who the manager is it could be anybody but you would go to guys and I, I keep coming back to Willie Muller because Willie Muller for me in a one in one situation was magnificent mm. I'll tell you another one and people say you're off your head I remember talking to John Brown and John Brown said I think I've said this to you before the back four at Rangers at the time when they were winning the nine in a row was Richard Goff and, and John Brown, the centre-backs. Who was the full-backs, Bill? Don't you know? know. Oh. Don't know. I couldn't Maybe tell Stephen Jerry, I'm the worst person in the right, world okay, to okay. ask about these anyway, things. Anyway, when you play football, right, you always tell... The full-backs always tuck in, right? So if the centre-backs are going to challenge, the full-backs will tuck in that wee bit, just in case the centre-half missed a header and the inside man want to come mm. through. So you tuck in and you take it away. John Brown told me that because John was quick and Richard Goff was quick, right, and he said Richard Goff would, every time Rangers played, he would tell the guys before the kick-off, remember, if the ball comes up the middle of the park, make sure the full-backs, Ali Dawson was one, make sure you're in front of me and John Brown. Never be behind us, because if I know you're in front of me and I know, and I know Bombers in front of me, I can step and play this guy offside. Mm-hmm. And nine times out of ten, I'll be offside because I don't need to worry about fullbacks. That contradicted what everybody used to teach you. Talk in, talk in. Rangers were totally different. And it was only because the two of them would get pace. Now, if you look at the Scottish centre-backs, even with the big boy McKenna, who was injured, Bill, he's not quick. Yeah. Charlie McGrew's not quick. The boy Cooper doesn't look quick. So you then have to get fullbacks to talk in, but they don't talk in because they're too far up the park. Because yeah. their attributes are going that way, not defending. No, I agree. Listen, one of the the, the countries that have <clears throat> kind of stripped back and rebuilt the national team is Finland, of course. Let's speak to a Finnish sports journalist, uh, Jana Oivio. Uh, Jana, how are you? It's uh, good to have you on the program. Thank you for joining us tonight. 
Thanks very much for having me. I'm doing great. How are you guys? Yeah, good. Listen, one of the, you, you've obviously heard part of the conversation that, that we have had, uh, and we're in a situation where, really, to be honest with you, we're in a complete state of beleaguerment in terms of the, the national team. It seems that we just cannot qualify for a major tournament. We cannot win important games. Now, uh, the Finnish team... Hey, welcome to the club, man. <laughs> <laughs> but the Finnish team went through a, a, a period which has been far worse than they, they ha have at the moment. Uh, and Finnish football and the Finnish national team, uh, there's been improvement there. Uh, it's a similar population to Scotland. Tell me what Finland as a country, as a nation, have done, uh, 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 has done to actually uh, improve the national team, in your view. Uh, well, I mean, if you call a period of worst play 100 years of abject misery, then I guess, you know, you can call that a period. But, I mean, they turned it around, actually, about two years ago. And it's not... I don't know that it's a huge change in, in player development that's showing yet, but this current national team was just, there's actually a couple of interesting turning points in there, but they, they changed coaches to Marco Kaneva, who knows the, the setup inside and out. He knows the players inside and out. And basically what he did was he just, he kind of stopped screwing around. Finland had a bunch of different coaches who, they believed in systems rather than players, so they, they tried to stuff players into, into roles and into systems that they didn't fit. And, and the new coach kind of looked at it a few years ago and said, I've got so-and-so type of players who are good at this and they're bad at that, and we have to be really good at something to beat good teams. And, and they kind of started working from that. And the first thing to do, which invariably you do when you struggle, is you fix the defense. And then you kind of build forward from there. So now Finland has, over the past two years, exactly two years actually they won 15 games drawn three and lost six and before that they went through two years where they won one single game so it's a pretty dramatic and a very fast turnaround with essentially the same players there are other instances though of, of things that have been done we were talking and, and it's interesting you mentioned that the manager the Finnish national coach saying look it's, it shouldn't be about the systems, it should be about the players we've got, because that's one of the arguments we were having before you came on, and I said the problem is now everyone's obsessed by the system, and you're not necessarily playing someone who plays at club level uh, in a position or in a system that makes them feel particularly comfortable, therefore you don't get the best, yeah. the best out of them. Uh, the other thing that we've said, and, and something that we have a real problem with, I don't know what the situation in, is in Finland but you know kids can be brought into clubs uh, professional clubs from 8 years old and younger uh, and by the time they're 14 a large percentage of them are told by the club you're never going to be a footballer so we're letting you go now at 14 years of age when you've had aspirations of being a footballer and there are footballers as we all know Andy, Andy Robertson who is one of the ones uh, that we can relate to he was let go uh, and told that he wasn't going to make it um, you know they can be late developers but 
if you lose a large yep. percentage of these kids to the game where they just walk away from football, uh, you don't get them back again and you just don't know what you've lost because you've you've done it too early. What's the situation in Finland with kids being associated with professional clubs? Uh, does it happen at a later age? Is there a certain way of doing it? Tell me that. Well, I mean, the first thing that we have to establish that not even every one of the... Um, the top-level teams in Finland is a professional club. Some of them are, are part-time professionals, so there's a big difference right off the bat. But the thing is that I think in Scotland it's it's so much bigger, with particularly Rangers and Celtic and, and sort of the stakes that they're playing. But in Finland I think that there's a more, especially over the past sort of 10-15 years, maybe a little bit more of a concentration of let's try to get more young kids to play. But there's also the other side of it, which I don't think you see a lot in Scotland, which is that a lot of Finnish teenagers, the more talented players, will go abroad into academies. So you think about national team captain, Tim Sparm, who he's over 30 now, but he went to Southampton Academy. And uh, you've got a bunch of other guys who went to foreign academies when they were younger. So they get a good player training there, and then they come back and, and, and they make a career if they can make it. But what that does is that when there's a certain part of your more talented player base that goes abroad, it opens up opportunities for sort of the next tier of players, and they're the ones who break out in in uh, the Finnish league for the most part. So maybe there's a little bit more opportunity there through that. I don't know, but it's a, maybe that's a, it's a possibility. Yanni, Jerry Collins here. The, you said that going back two years, it's, it's two years since they've changed, turned it around and they've won these 15 games. Is it the same players that played when they were losing all these games? Yes. Is, is it still the same players yes. that's now? Pretty much like, actually, sorry to cut you off straight away. I'll just jump in because okay. it's pretty critical. They actually had a few of the best players of this particular generation retired from the national team right around the time that they had this breakout. So it's, it, it, it sort of underscores the fact that Finland plays an actually pretty simple style of football and but you have to separate one of the really important things to separate is club football and national team football are completely different things because national teams only get together once a month for a week so you don't have a lot of time to practice you don't have a lot of time to prepare and and if you sort of come into that kind of situation with a, an approach that isn't players first then i think you're going to be in a lot of trouble and i think that's a big reason so then club football with you, you guys were talking about the systems earlier and stuff. That's a completely different animal because the players are in training every day. You play two games a week. You've got so much time to work on the details. And in the national team, you don't. And I think that's sort of it's, it, isn't, uh, it isn't just sort of kick it up the park and go fight. It's not, that's not the point with the Finnish team, how they're playing, but it's sort of they found the core of what the team is good at and they focus on that, if, if that makes sense to yeah. you guys. But the, the, the defenders... Yanni, that played when the team was losing all the time. You're telling us they're the mm -hmm. same guys now that they've won 15 yeah. games. So these guys mm -hmm. that now play, were they specifically chosen to play a certain way in defending? Because if you've lost 15 games and then you win 15 games, somebody's done something right regarding defenders. Were the defenders taken mm -hmm. out and, and shown by an expert, this is how we defend as a team? Well, I mean, the current coach is, and, and his coaching staff is very well versed in it. So in that sense, I think yes. But it's sometimes, I don't know that it's, it's a question of having a specific expert more than, than there's sort of just, 
when you have a group that's talented enough, and if we put Finland's players and Scotland's players, and you kind of put them side by side, and you look at what kind of club they're playing at, what the level is, then Scotland should be better than Finland, essentially. So then it's more just about being able to organize the team in an intelligent way, because they weren't doing that really before, and it was a it was a big issue. So then, and then obviously there's a few new guys. Like, well, you guys will know Glenn Camara, of course. Mm-hmm. So then, when he emerged with the national team, that very much coincides with with the turnaround because he's the sort of player that then he can protect the, the back four, and then with his athleticism and his skill on the ball, he can help playing forward as well. So then, uh, they've been able to add new players here and there, but uh, most of the group is the same. One of the things, Yanni, that we talk about, and it's not exclusive to Scotland, I'm sure it's not exclusive to Finland, it's a global thing, where young people have so many distractions now in terms of Xboxes, Playstations and other activities, uh, which takes them away potentially from playing football. That's something that everybody jumps on but forgets that it's the same for every country in the world. Let exactly. me ask Let me ask you about Finland in, in real terms. You know, how easy is it and how receptive are young people now to still playing sport and playing football, particularly in Finland? And what what have the Finns done? What have you done as a nation to capitalise on their willingness to continue playing football? I think that that's something that we're only going to learn in a few years' time because this is, even though the PlayStation Xbox thing that you mentioned has been obviously going on for a good amount of time, it's. I think we'll only see that generation coming up properly in a few years. But I think that mainly it's just about how do you make the game appealing and how is it, because this younger generation is different than the previous one, so you have to figure out, and I don't know specifically what they've done or or even, in fact, if they've been able to crack the code. But I do know that the amount of players that are, are playing football, I think it's still growing. So that has to be, I think, a positive net effect on that. But one thing that I think in Finland they've been able to do is because, as I said when I came on, it's been a long time that Finland hasn't been very good. So over the course of the past 10 or 15 years, I think the Football Federation and, and people around it have tried to figure out, uh, are we coaching these players the right way? Are we giving them the proper kind of player education? And that's one of the things that they've emphasized is training coaches. So just because, let's say, for instance, you're a, a really good former player, doesn't mean automatically you get the big jobs, right? So then you have to go through, you go through the courses and you go through the training. And actually there's a whole generation of young coaches in Finland now who are extremely versed in sort of very continental styles of coaching. And obviously those effects, then, you know, they coach the younger kids now and they learn things that they wouldn't have learned in the past. So that, I think the youth level, the coaching has improved, which means that then in the future we're going to see better generations of young players, but that's just to come. Yeah, yeah and see the back four that play for the Finnish national team. Where do they play? Mm-hmm. Which country uh, do they play You in? mean the club teams? Yes, uh, the left back plays in Belgium. Um, the centre backs, well, one of them played. He just played in Denmark, but he went to Cyprus actually, which was a pretty funky move. Uh, the other one plays in Sweden, and then the right back plays in Sweden as well. And the other one, who kind of splits time with him, plays in in Major League Soccer. So it's not, you know, this team doesn't have a lot of A-list players. Obviously, the the goalkeeper Lukas Radetzky, he plays in big Bundesliga clubs, so he's he's world class. But uh, otherwise, it's 
you know, it's pretty much the same story with the whole team. Most of the guys are cobbled together from sort of mid-level, mid-level continental European sides. It's kind of interesting because that kind of preempts what I was going to ask. I was going to say, percentage-wise, how many of those players still play in Finland or, or Scandinavia, for example? Well, Scandinavia, there's a bunch because the Norwegian League is good and the Swedish and the Danish leagues are good. The Finnish League is sort of a, a tier below that. So it, you don't really have a lot of players from the Finnish League. But obviously, if someone is, is playing very well, he'll make the team. But in the starting 11, not so much. You see, one of the things that, that may be a, a factor in this, Jerry, is the fact that if you've got players that are not playing in what you would call the more fashionable leagues, potentially they don't come under the same kind of hero worship that other players do and don't make the same financial uh, gain as other players do. And maybe their heads are not turned in the same way mm-hmm. and their attitudes are not tainted in the same way as the big-time Charlies. Uh, <laughs> well, it's possible, but I'm sorry to jump in again. It's just it's possible, but I think that there's also that if you look at the Scottish team on a whole, like most of the players, if not all of them, they play in either Scotland or England, and particularly the Championship. Correct. Yep. Well, actually, yeah, you're right. But we've got quite a high level now of players, percentage-wise, who are now playing in the, the English Premier League. Uh, you know, there's yeah. quite a few of them now playing in the English Premier League. Now, that's the first time that's happened okay. for quite a while. And it's been something that we've said, oh, one of the failings we've had is we've not had enough players playing at the highest level. That's not quite as true now as it held back then. But uh, let me ask you then, Bill. Okay. Do, okay. You th- do you think that the players that play in the Premier League in England are Premier League football players? I know they are in name, but would you class him as a Premier League footballer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you would have to say in a lot of instances, no, because they didn't start in the Premier League. They came up from the Championship or whatever. Uh, And some of them still in the Championship. But they're still playing at a higher level week in, week out. And that's the point Mm -hmm. I would make, that we used to say they're not playing at a good enough level or a high enough level. Uh, yeah. Yanni, we've used every excuse for being poor from uh, the fact that we're a small nation to one manager, the last, uh, but one manager saying we weren't tall enough. What? Yeah, exactly. That was the, awesome. that was that, the, that awesome. was that was the reaction that everybody had when Gordon yeah. Strachan said it. You know, yeah. we're just well, not. We had we had Mixo for a while, and you know him, of course. <laughs> yeah, was, we do know Mixo. Yeah, basically. Yeah, he he was interesting because he came in and he said, "I have a system, which is the the, the horrifying Christmas tree." But anyway, it's like I have a system, and he he tried to stuff the players. Just it's like square pegs and round holes, you know. And and that went on for what four years, you know. So I I and and it was basically always like it's not he'd never change anything, and it was just like it's it's not the system, it's the players. The players are garbage, and essentially, well, he didn't say garbage, but you know what I mean. So then it basically, and then we had this one horrible Swedish coach. Like he was so past it that he couldn't even see the station anymore. But then, you know, so you get to the point where you think, okay, maybe the players are terrible. But now pretty much the same guys are, are very, very close to making the European Championship. And I think that goes to show that you have to have a certain... So if you, if you think about the Scottish team, for example, I keep looking at this, this team and I wonder, like, again, like as, as your colleague said, a lot of them who are in the Premier League, they don't play there. How many influences do you have 
from from sort of outside of the very traditional Scottish football realm. Like how much, if you think about how many influences in, in youth training or in the academies or in the league system or, or how many players go abroad and maybe learn something that they wouldn't where they are. Like how much of that do you have? Because the Finnish team is basically like a melting pot of a million different football cultures because of where the players have to go to get playing time. See, Yanni, I don't know if you heard what I said to Bill earlier on. That my, my problem is that one, for me, one of the best defenders that Scotland has ever produced was a guy called Willie Miller from Aberdeen, who won the Cup Winners' Cup mm-hmm. in Gothenburg. Willie and Alec McLeish, who was the, the previous manager of Scotland, Willie Miller has never been involved in the national team to work with defenders. Now, in this day and age, you have a goalkeeping coach, you have a strikers coach. Mm-hmm. Why do we not have a defenders coach? Because nobody, not, no previous manager has went to Willie Miller, who's not working. He works in the, he's a broadcaster now in the football. No previous manager has went to Willie Miller and said, listen, we'd like to bring you in for the three or four days we've got the players just to show them the art of defending. This guy was the best and we don't use him. That's mm-hmm. my problem, that we don't use the best that's available. Yeah, you don't want like that is that's definitely something you don't want to do and it's it's something that I appreciate with the current Finnish setup and and a few of the older ones is that they do very gainfully employ and happily employ a lot of the former national team like Jonathan Johansson was uh, he was involved earlier with national team and Antti Niemi still is the former Rangers keeper he still is involved so then you do get the sort of uh, the know-how from the from sort of guys who have seen and done it all, but they're you know, and then they they come in and they give their input, which is important. Yeah, Yanni, see the national team. Do they play on four G pitches or is it grass pitches in Finland for the national team? Uh, the national team plays on natural grass, but basically, like you can't play football in Finland without the artificial pitches and the plastic pitches because it's. Uh, I mean, this is one of the bigger developments, I think, over the past 20 years, is just how prevalent the um, the artificial pitches have become. And actually, Celtic have had a couple of moans about it when they've played Hojiko here in the Champions League qualifiers, because they've played on plastic pitch since 2002, and they're the biggest team in the country. But basically, we've got, I'd say, two generations now of footballers who have played more as juniors on artificial pitch than uh, than grass growing up and and I think it's had actually a positive effect because it's a heck of a lot easier to learn technical skills of playing football when you're not playing on essentially what it, what amounts to a pile of of, of garbage and rubble which it, which it would be if it's grass so the increased opportunity of training and training on something else than sand is it's it's been a huge factor in in player development here as well Interesting. I mean, sweet uh, Finland, sorry, are uh, sitting second in their group at the moment, I think, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yes, So and very firmly so. There was a time where we thought we might be playing Finland in the playoff of the, the Nations League, but it doesn't look like that's going to be the case now, uh, because the best we can hope so. for is being third. <laughs> that's, it's, how did you lose all those games? <laughs> How would you like me to come over to Finland? How would you like me to come over to Finland and try and explain it to you? Because it would take a lifetime. 
I know. You you guys have only been bad for a little while. I mean, call me back when, when you start playing football in 1907, and then the first time you have a meaningful game is 1997. <laughs> it's hard being a football follower, isn't it, Yanni? Oh yes. If you don't, if you if you're not uh, born in the correct country, then sometimes it can be. It, but it can be a bit tough. But a lifetime in pain and suffering is being paid back to Finnish football fans in spades right now, which is very nice. One of the, one of the things that that we were saying though, and and I still think we have to do because we have no visibility of what our plan is mm-hmm. for the national team, and the reason for that, and I may sound overly cynical, the reason for that I believe is because I don't think there is a plan. Uh, if there was, then I think now during this time of, and I will use the word crisis, is the time to come out and say, look, guys, don't panic. Here's the plan. It's going to take the next five years. This is what we're going to have to do this is why we're doing that but this is where we'll get to and and yet we never ever get that ever and that when when you don't get that in a time where we are now where we've gone through managers like most people go through socks uh then that's when i think there is no plan that's why no one's telling us what it is yeah, I mean, I think I think sometimes sort of the, you know, you want some sort of universal plan to show you the way, which is fine. And in, in Finland, trust me, they've tried the plan. There's this thing called Vision 2020, which became the most derided thing in Finnish football history. And then actually it kind of looks like it's going to work out after all, even though not as a result of the plan, but just good people doing intelligent things. So I think that... I, I don't know specifically the situation in Scotland, but it seems to me like it's more of a, a national team problem than a football development problem. I mean, you guys are developing pretty good players. So then in, in Finland, we constantly think about how could we get players who are better and to play in better leagues. And I think the national team success is kind of a byproduct of the fact that you kind of you find the right players and you, you keep it as simple as you can for, for for the reason that national team football is is it's such a short time of preparation but i think you have a lot of the ingredients it's just about turning it around if you don't mind i'll i'll tell you about what was really a huge turning point for finland which was uh, on the 2nd of um september 2017 so exactly two years ago finland played iceland and remember this is the time when iceland is the hottest team in the entire world remember they played in i think yeah, 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 and they were excellent all around. And there's 16,000 people in the state, so it's capacity crowd. And I'd say that of the 16,000 people, at least 14,000 were there specifically just to watch Iceland. Finland at this point, this is the point when they had lost uh, everything except one game in 16 games. So then, so everyone's there to watch Iceland. And then Finland wins, like completely out of the blue. They beat Iceland, the hottest team in football. And that's the game that started the turnaround because sometimes it's as simple as we beat the hottest team in football maybe we can do this after all and after that 15 wins six losses three draws so i think you know you find the right players and you know you kind of have to catch lightning in a bottle they beat kosovo they drew with croatia drew with turkey and then suddenly they're off to the races yeah mm. yeah you were saying there about scotland that they do develop um decent players and you're right Scottish clubs do develop their own players, but those players, when they go and play in European competitions, don't play as well, because all you have to do is look mm-hmm. at all you have to do is look at the Celtic record in Europe, 
Now Celtic have kind of dominated for different reasons in football that they've dominated Scottish football for the past few years. Mm-hmm. But when they play in Europe and they come against, I would think, and now I go to the football games and I look at them and I think, they're not a, they're not a top European team. Teams like AEK Athens or or Maccabi Hafia, teams that I think that these Scottish clubs should be beaten and we struggle to beat them because the players don't develop mm-hmm. the form that they have in Scottish football. The minute you play European teams, it goes back out the window again. They don't they don't seem to produce a level but of... But Jerry, do you not think that the potentially that comes down to the way that they change their game and they try and play this kind of European game rather than the natural game they play in Scotland? And if you look at Celtic, for example, this season particularly with Neil Lennon, OK, they've gone out of the Champions League, but they're still in the Europa League and even in the Champions League... In the games where they played well, they played with pace and they played the way that they do week in, week out in the Scottish Premier League. The games that they lost was the games that they played that were different with no pace as they play week no, in, no, week I'm out. Going to, I'm going to disagree with you because the Cluj game in the Champions League, they draw 1-1 one, one with Cluj. Well, they were just terrible at the back. No, but they, OK, but they draw 1-1 one, one with Cluj in Romania and you would think, bring them back to Celtic Park they would want, you would think, oh God, the, the one they've scored away from home, Cruz scored four goals. No, I know. At Parkhead, Bill. And my point is that the, the players do it on a weekly basis in the Scottish Premier League, but they don't do it when you go to Europe. Mm. Mm. Listen, Yanni. Can I offer a theory? Because yeah, sure. I have a theory. Right. <laughs> Everybody has a theory, my friend. Celtic, Celtic is excellent. Rangers are getting to be excellent again, I guess, yeah. soon. But then the competition in the Scottish League, I mean, it's not that good. I mean, a Finnish team almost knocked out Aberdeen, or they were close enough, let's say, comparatively earlier this summer. Like, the Scottish League is fine, but the problem is that Rangers and Celtic, and especially Celtic, essentially they're used to kicking everyone's head in every single weekend. So yeah, but, but here's, here's where you, here's, Yanni, here's where, you, where, where your theory is flawed to a degree. And okay. that, that is that, that, that those players who then play at international level, right, a lot of those are playing at a higher level than Scottish League football week in, week out. And by your own admission, mm-hmm. if you look at the bulk of the team in Scandinavia, you know, in Finland, a lot of your players are playing in Scandinavia. Now, is the Swedish League better than the Scottish Premier League? Is the Norwegian League better than the, the Scottish Premier League? Is the Danish League better than the Scottish Premier League? I don't know. I'm asking you. But they wouldn't be ranked as top leagues in Europe, yet you're still producing mm-hmm. players who are able to compete at the highest level internationally. That's true. But I mean, the point that I was trying to get to is that if the kind of football that you're used to playing is basically you're so superior to your opponent for most of the time, that, that then the level of competition, it, it doesn't become irrelevant, but it's difficult because then you have to get used to a completely different style of playing because suddenly when Celtic is in Europe, they play against equal, as you said, or teams that they could beat and maybe should beat, but they're not used to playing that in a, on a weekly basis mm. because they're, okay. they're, gap in the level between the best teams in Scotland, it's so huge to everybody else. So then I think that that's even a bit counterproductive to them. 
Yeah, no, I, I can follow the theory and it's it's not flawed in any way. Yanni, listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you and I've been a bit of an education as well. Thank you very much. I dare say we'll speak to you again Thanks for having at me. some point. No, Thanks, you're more Yanni. than welcome. Thank you. Finnish sports journalist uh, Yanni Oivio uh, talking to us tonight about how Finland rebuilt the national team. We'll talk more. Oh, by the way, before we finish with national football for a wee while, uh, can I just remind everybody, 1985 today was a particularly bad day for the national team uh, because the late great Jock Steen sadly passed away on this day back in 1985 Uh, we're going to talk about mental health we do it regularly on the programme next uh, and particularly because today is World Suicide Prevention Day and uh, we want to talk more about that our next guest is up after this on Rock Sport. Have you ever lost money on an investment? If a high street bank persuaded you to buy a stocks and shares ISA, unit trust or investment bond and you lost money, Goodwin Barrett can help you get back thousands of pounds in compensation. Even if you don't have the investment anymore or the paperwork, Goodwin Barrett make it easy to find out. Text GOOD to 6677. That's GOOD to 6677. You don't need a claims management company to make a complaint and if unsuccessful you can refer it free to the financial ombudsman. Do you hear that? That's your family coming round to your new house for Sunday lunch. Your son opening the door of his first home. Visitors arriving at your guest house. Friends coming over to watch the football. Scottish Building Society offer a range of mortgages so we can turn this into this. Scottish Building Society. We've been helping people open doors since 1848. Call us today on 0345 600 4085. Scottish Building Society is authorised by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority. It's easy to put things off. I'll sort it tomorrow. It'll wait. Well, turns out if you're a man with prostate disease, the sooner you spot it, the better it can often be treated. So if your dad or brother have had prostate cancer or you're having trouble with your waterworks, do something about it. See your GP or visit prostatescotland.org.uk for more information. Prostate Scotland. Pull your finger out. Leave the winter outside with Plumbase's hottest offers in the Feel the Heat brochure. Get yours at your local Plumbase branch. Plumbase is the place. Love music, live sport. Talking football with Bill Young and Jerry Collins on Rock Sport Radio. Okay, folks, were you arguing over Jockstein's date of death a moment ago with me? No, no, no. I was telling you the story that in 1985, where me and Jerry McKay were selected to go to to go to Holland with the Scottish B team. Yeah, Jockstein was a manager, mm-hmm. but he pulled out because it was a car crash with Tony Queen. So it was later on that year then. Yeah. Because we went away there in May. Yeah, well, it would be September, obviously, Uh, today. Okay, listen, folks, we talk about it regularly on the programme because we think it's important, and we think it's important for a number of reasons. Uh, But today is is World Suicide Prevention Day. 800,000 people a year die uh, from committing suicide, taking their own lives. In the UK, 84 men take their own life a day. Uh, We've had various people on talking about mental health and well-being 
uh, on a regular basis. Tonight, we're going to welcome uh, founder of Mental Health Charity back on side with us, uh, now working with a number of different clubs, uh, Libby Emerson. Libby, thanks for coming in, first of all. Um, let me let me just ask you again to recap on how Back On Side actually happened. How did it come about? How did you? Um, it's quite a personal story. So it started back in 2016 as an idea to go into schools to educate children um, about their mental health in mm-hmm. schools. Because at the time, my son was get, getting really badly bullied, and he did have some dark thoughts. But we were very close. So he was able to talk to me about them. And then we launched it in early 2017 with Charlie Adam, Barry Ferguson, Joe McGinn. And there was lots of press and it just took off. We were inundated with calls and I wasn't able to cope. We weren't in a situation that we could have dealt with that. So kind of put the brakes on and at the time... My mental health wasn't great, but I wasn't aware of it. And was that, was that a knock-on from having to deal with your son being bullied that your mental health wasn't great? Yeah, that and a few other kind of personal things that were going on in my life at the time right. that um, were just getting on top of me, uh, which was causing financial problems, lots and lots of different things. So anyway, in 2017, um, I started the process to make it as a charity. And at that time, something happened with my mental health in that year. It gave me a, a big fright, and all I can say is basically the footballing. A footballer saved my life. Um, I won't name who he is. No, that's um, fine. But if it hadn't been for him, I probably wouldn't be here. So that was a. I got a lot of help as well at that time, privately from another footballer that that was like knew really well, and I decided that I didn't ever want to be in the position or want anybody else to be in the position where they couldn't turn to anybody. It wasn't because mm-hmm. I don't have a, a family. I have an amazing family who are very supportive. And But at the time, I was embarrassed. I was I felt I was a burden, so I didn't want to talk to them about things. So I don't ever want anybody to be in that position because that happens daily where they're scared to tell their parents, they're scared to tell their friends. Is, is that a thread that, through experience of running back on side that you've found oh, yeah. runs through with everybody that gets to that, that point, that state? Yeah, it's, it's embarrassment. They think, they're, they think they're a freak. They think they're a burden to people. They think they're going to get um, laughed at. It, that is a huge, huge thing. I mean, it's, it's mass, especially within the football world. Um, we don't just deal with footballers, we deal with anybody, no, no, I, no, everybody, no. but a huge part of is football, um, and that's where we kind of focus in just now, because we're dealing with so many. In past times, just before I bring you in, Jerry, mm-hmm. in past times, people have been fairly glib about <laughs> responding to hearing about people taking their own lives or trying to take their own lives, and one of the most probably used phrases as the coward's way out just explain to us how because i find it hard to say the coward's way out because i've got to be honest with you i don't think that people that i've known that have been in that position have thought about anything that they've been numb in terms of what they feel and how they feel it just you know for people who would have that response explain to them why it's not a question of cowardice in any way that's definitely not a cowardly thing, if anything. I think it's actually something that's very brave to come to that decision that you're going to end your life. Um, it's not an, an easy... But you would agree that that is a glib comment oh, yeah, that people definitely. make. Uh, and, and they make it without thinking, unfortunately. 
a lot of people think it's selfish as well, um, especially if, if you're leaving behind children or a family. The reaction to people that don't understand is, oh, you've just been selfish. But actually, no, the people that are in that situation at the time think they're being selfish by being alive because they're maybe not able to provide for mm-hmm. their family or they're, they think they're a burden. So they, they think they're being selfish by being alive. So it's about educating people before it gets to that stage and being able to to ask for help because as soon as someone speaks and, and says how's their, how they're feeling and they realise that probably a lot more of their friends have had those dark thoughts as well, they've maybe just not taken them that one step further, that actually it's a normal thing. It is a normal thing. Everybody has a bad day and I don't know anybody that's not said to me at some point in their life, oh, do you know what, can't be doing with this today. Mm. It's, you, it's, you ever thought about suicide, Jerry? No, no. But Bill, it's quite ironic. I work as a taxi driver, Libby, and I walk down the Bridgeton area, and I never knew this was on. I never knew Libby was on tonight, and I was talking to my wee pal today, and I seen a big crowd gathering, and the St Mungo School in East End of Glasgow, a kid committed suicide. Right, a kid. I think it was fourteen or fifteen, and the funeral was a day, so we're sitting watching all the kids. It was horrible. And the guy, a friend of mine, I'll, I'll not tell his name, but we're, we're just chatting away. And I said, what makes people do that? And he said to me, he turned around and said to me, I'm going to show you something, and you don't tell MD. I went, what is that? And he showed me his wrist bill. And he said, I was in Parkhead Hospital for seven months. I tried to commit suicide. Now, this wee guy's got a few quid. He's got his own business. And he went, your mind just goes. You don't think of anything apart from... You're in pain every day. I didn't know that. And then this is on the other night. Unbelievable. But he said that he get help. He spoke to people and eventually he kind of came out. He's still fearful that he might go back to the way he was thinking many years ago. Well, I'll tell you something, and this is absolutely true, and I've never told anybody. In fact, I told my wife it for the first time a, a couple of weeks ago because we were talking about it. And she asked me, have you ever thought about committing suicide? And I said to her, yes, twice. Um, sadly for me... <laughs> Uh, the situation was that uh, the way I, I am and the way I'm wired, I overthought the whole thing. You know, I was kind of thinking, would that banister hold my weight and stuff? And by the time I thought it all through, it, it just had evaporated. Mm. There was a time once where I was driving home late one night and there was a quarry and I just thought, you know, and, and I'm being absolutely honest. I've never told people this, but I told my wife it for the first time a couple of weeks ago. And... On the face of it, and this is where I come back to the football side of things, on the face of it, at the time, I was probably at the peak of my career. I was working for a great radio station just outside London. Everything was right. I had no worries about anything at all. But I felt I was more the person people thought I was by listening to me on the radio than the person that I actually was. And I started feeling swamped by it. And I just felt, you know, who's me? Who am I? Everybody sees this person and that's the person they want to know and they want to talk to. But that's really me. And it just, I felt as if I was watching my own life kind of sat in a corner watching a film. Does that make sense? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And that's what a lot of footballers say to us as well. It's people forget that they have a life back home when they leave that stadium or dressing room. They're going home. To normal everyday things, arguments with their partners, kids not sleeping at night, fam like parents maybe been ill, they're dealing with all that and they've got to keep that out of the public eye because of the way social media is now. So 
people forget the public, general public forget that they are just humans. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story, and this is an absolutely true story. I swear to you, my mother. My father and both my brothers sat in reception of the radio station for four hours waiting for me to finish my radio programme so we could go straight to my grandmother's funeral. But you had to have the face on or the, the voice on. I chose to because I felt I had to. I mean, there was nothing I could do for my grandmother and I'd be at the funeral. But for four hours, I had to be that person that I was every day while they sat in the reception of the radio station waiting for me to take me to the funeral. Mm. Mm. So if kids don't come to you with problems, right, what signs should parents look for to think, I think my kid's got a problem? Is there signs that you think they're, they're signs that you would look for and you think there's, there's a problem here? But if the kids don't tell you, how do you get to know the signs then? I think it's just knowing, watching how your child changes. So if you've got a really bubbly child and all of a sudden they became, become really withdrawn or their eating pattern changes or they're, they're constantly not well. My wee boy was constantly having sore stomachs and not wanting to go to school and I was just putting it down to that he just had a sore tummy. Mm-hmm. And social media, he didn't have social media and he still doesn't, but he'd pressure at school. He'd set up a, an Instagram page and my daughter happened to find it and we just found all this abuse on his phone um, and again, a, a child that's really quiet normally all of a sudden becomes really bubbly. And it's the same with adults. A change in character, there's something getting hidden. Um, not wanting to go out with their friends, becoming stuck in a bedroom. Parent, you know your child. You just If you get a gut feeling, you go with it. And that's what I had to do. And it took me about three years to get the school to listen to me. So did your son then open up when you approached him? Oh, yeah, definitely. Right, but but right. we've got a really close relationship and he he knows that I'm quite passionate about mental health so he's hearing it a lot so he was very open but he got a lot of lot of kind of stick for that at school mm-hmm. for being being so open um but yeah teachers as well I mean we have to get in and educate teachers as well as can I can I ask a question because it's not despite what I've just told you I don't think it applies in the same way to to my thought process mm-hmm. at the time do most people make a split-second decision to take their own lives, or is it something that they build up to and plan? And does that give you the opportunity to see those telltale signs? I think there's lots of different... Um, some people will plan it out for a long time. Some people will just have an instant, I, I, I can't be here anymore. But when you look back at those people, you'll have seen signs that you probably wouldn't have realised. Just... Mm. Even just things for social media, for instance, if people start tweeting lots of things about mental health, like memes or putting me comments up, that is a that's a big telltale sign because that's how they're they're reading them and, and feeling that. So it's as if they're trying to tell people I'm I'm struggling here. Um, but you will get situations where people, especially if drink drinks involved or drugs, and they're out on a Friday Saturday night and they're they're having a tough time, decisions will be made that they probably don't wouldn't have made if they were not involved in drinking drugs. Um, I think you probably get a lot of accidental suicides as well, which will be. People. You mean people that that think about killing yeah. themselves, but kind of hope they're going to be found, stopped yeah. or found. Uh, and it's that about, happens quite a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and that's people that are just wanting a cry for help, as in they're they're wanting. Do they find that them. easier though to to take that? God knows, 
action uh, against actually just coming out and talking to people because that in itself is surely an indictment about how we deal with this, that people feel they have to go to that extreme rather than being able to sit down with people that they know and love or love uh, and they know and love them uh, to be able to sit down and just talk about it. I think it's an embarrassing thing, a pride in how you're going to be Is judged. this embarrassment thing really that strong? Yes, because definitely. Really? God. Definitely. Um, a lot worse than what I think a lot of people realise. Um, and it's really sad. It's, it's If we could just... People need to realise that everybody has mental health. Everybody's got physical health. You've got to look after both. And it should be, for instance, if you walk into a dressing room you're asked how you're feeling, as in your bones, your bodies, whatever. Does anybody ever say, and how's your head feeling? Mm -hmm. That should become an, a normal thing anywhere. Um, football teams have physios. Why don't they have a mental health support worker? It's exactly the same, especially if somebody has got an injury, it's going to affect their mental health straight away. Let me see in terms of football, like, well, when, you, when young kids come in right, and you make the grade... And you think you've maybe given that kid the chance to go and perform and to get away and, and you think, God, that's one of mine. He'd, he came under me, he done well. Do you think, is there a scale for you where you, that you can go and think, we helped that guy, that guy's doing well now and we helped that guy. Do you reflect back on all the ones you've helped? Yeah, well, we, today, today, up till today, and I had two calls from footballers today, we're sitting at 58 footballers within the SPFL that we've supported. That's amazing. I think it's heartbreaking. And some have been at crisis point on on a chain line or about to take an overdose. Um, a lot have just been needing support and someone to listen to and realise that the issues they're going through is normal and, and mm. there's people out there to listen. 58. So how many years are there, Libby? Um, within... Well, there's just just me in the front line, and then we have three different counsellors that we that are self-employed, so uh -huh. we we refer them, and then back on site pays for them, and then we've got some patrons and ambassadors that will come to events, and I think Graham Wilson's one of them. He's on tomorrow night with you, um, but on the front line, it's just me. I've got a, my phone's twenty four seven. It's like a, a crisis line. I've got I've got a I've got a real bee in my bonnet about one particular thing since we started talking about mental health and football. Mm -hmm. Uh, specifically, there is a real bee in my bonnet, and I've touched upon it, but not from a mental health point of view tonight. I'm going to touch on it again, but from the mental health point of view. And this is the way that young kids are brought into professional clubs at a very young age and then discarded by the time they're early teenagers. Now, for me, what we're doing potentially is fostering mental health problems in people by doing that, because what we're not doing is we're not, if you like... Um, acclimatising them to go back in and that's one of the things I feel should be done with young people at football clubs they should be counselled at all areas all the way through look, you might not get to the end of this and this is what I mean but this is what we'll do yeah. and it's this kind of thing well, you know, you might be worth a lot of money to us one day but you see if you get to 14 and you're not <laughs> get the bus Yeah. and that I have a real bee in my bonnet about it really, really gets to me in a very, very powerful way. And one of the things that I think is worse, if you come from a peer group where three or four of you have come from a school or a club that's gone to the same football club and one of you gets cut loose 
and the other two are kept or the other three are kept and you're the guy that's then outside that group that must be horrifying for people yeah. and it's a real Jerry I hate it it's 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 really got to me over the last few years since we started talking well, about mental I have, health I have in the program but I I don't I don't understand why clubs are happy to accept that that they can bring these kids on and that they're an asset for a certain period of time, but can just wash their hands of them yeah. when they don't see them being that cash cow at some point. Mm -hmm. And that's as blunt as I can put it. You're right. John Baird, how would you how would you think him as a footballer, be John? John, great player. Did very well. Yeah, Good career. Great player. Last 12, 13, 14 years. John Baird was 14, my son's best pal, and get told by a coach from a, a certain team... We're letting you go because we don't think you'll be an international player. No, they let him go. But he went and made his career. He went to St Murn, he went to Thistle, he went to Dundee, he went everywhere. He did a great, he's still playing. He had a great career. But this guy broke his heart by telling him, hey, you're never going to be an international. That boy could have went the other way. How many international games do you think he'd have made against club appearances in his life? Surely it's immaterial. Correct. It's a small percentage of but games, that coach, that even Bill, if he was. That was a coach telling him that. So Sorry, coaches, are, no, coaches have got to be educated as well. No, Things definitely. Like that. And I, I would say what we're, we're working with quite a few teams now um, and the managers are doing really well as they'll contact us and they'll say, we've got concerns with X, Y and Z. What do we do? Can you help us? And they're starting, you can see the change. It's definitely happening. They're starting to like really think about their players and how, how their mental health is performing on them. But it's not, not just children. I, mean, I'm, I'm, I think... Yes, we have to definitely within the academies have to be looked after, and we we're working with a club. I'm, I'm not going to name who it is just now, but to to do exactly that, and they're they're putting in a a really good mental health program for their academy kids, but um, players as well, players that just just get moved from club to club once you. The uh, the other thing that mean? I find with players, and it, it's I don't think it's coincidental. I mean, Hugh Burns, for example, by accident one night we were sat in the studio having to talk about a number of different things got onto the whole mental health thing and he came out and told me that you know he suffers badly from depression takes medication mm -hmm. for it and I've seen both sides of it from him I really have uh, and it's it, it's quite scary when you see the dark side taking over um, and he wouldn't mind me talking like this because he's done it openly on the show which I think is great um, you know and from, was that doing his lifestyle at the time no a lot of it was triggered by the fact that he had finished playing football mm. and like a lot of footballers couldn't make up his mind what he was going to do mm -hmm. and by the time he thought oh I should go for my badges and things like that that ship had sailed uh, and, and he'd been too long out of the game and all the rest of it. And it was the fact, being a footballer, and, and, and I can speak from experience here from service personnel because I know a lot and I've been around them for a long, long time. I, I used to do work with service personnel. And being a footballer is a bit like being in the Army, the Navy or the Air Force. You wake up every morning, you know what your routine is. Mm -hmm. You know where you'll be at this time, you know what you'll be doing for that time. I'm not being funny or cheeky. For a lot of the time, you don't have to think for yourself because you're told what you're going to be doing, how you're going to be doing it. When you travel, you don't even carry your own passport. Somebody goes up and then they just file past so they can see the right picture at the right passport. So everything's laid on. And I don't mean laid on in a, a mamby-pamby way. Your life is structured. 
See, when you're finished with either the services of playing football, that structure leaves a vacuum, a chasm, the size of the Grand Canyon in your life. And that's what you have to deal with. And that, I should imagine, Libby, yeah. you will hear, is the catalyst for a lot of people yeah, no, breaking down mentally. Mm -hmm. Just actually, I know I can mention his name because he, he just spoke openly at our golf day, but Gary O'Connor, he is a prime example. That's He said that his structure and obviously everything else on his life, but it's it's only kind of now that that's still having an effect on him. He still struggles daily with his mental health um, because it's the, the change from coming from football and then to, to a completely different life. And as you say, it's that having people doing things for you and, and looking after you. Maybe you said that about clubs should have maybe have somebody in there that, that, that's qualified to talk to kids. See the 58 players that you, you were talking about mm. there? Can these guys you know, go into clubs and, and volunteer on your behalf to say, I'll go to that club and I'll talk to the guys, get permission from the club bill, and that person, like Gary O'Connor's going and talking to young kids at academies would relate to people like Gary O'Connor rather than a professor of whatever. But if it's coming for a footballer that's been through and done all and yeah. done the things... <laughs> Libby could answer that, I couldn't. We, that's what we're doing just now, actually. That's what we're starting to do. So we use, like, Gary... Uh, Lee Mayer, Chris Doolan, peer-to-peer -peer, yeah. um, to go in and, and do things like that. We just kind of put that in place just now. But the other good thing is we've partnered up with the Chris Mitchell Foundation. So I don't, I don't know if you know much about... Is that the Falkirk laddie? Yeah. yeah. So Chris obviously committed suicide and his mum and dad and uh, sister have set up the Chris Mitchell Foundation. And what they do is they go in, or they, through the SPFL, they fund for anybody related within football to go and get first aid mental health training and that can be from the tea lady to the physio to anybody and it's right through football it's not just your your top clubs so when we go in and do a talk to a team we'll always tell them look get as many of your players and your your staff on because if everybody's trained in first aid mental health that's when you know you start picking up signs and you all start talking and then they what they'll do with with us is if they get players that will approach them because they don't have the same services as us, they then refer them on to, to us. So we should all, all be working together and it will it will eventually, I would think, become the norm. That it's, it's, you go into a dressing room and guys can openly talk about it. We've done it recently with a club, which I won't mention, and they, um, they changed their whole dressing room. Like it, I don't think there was any of them that hadn't went through something or a family member wasn't going through something. So what we do is we go and do a team talk from about half an hour, but what we do, our stories, and then they go out training and the manager sends them in individually by number. So nobody's getting singled out. Mm -hmm. And they come in and have a five-minute chat with us. It turned out to be there were 10, 15-minute chats and they were opening up. So who's the person who chat? Was it you to be chatting to? Yeah, yeah. And then what I would do, would if somebody needed extra support or things were getting said, we then refer them mm -hmm. on to our counsellors. But we can get help within a couple of hours. To Why is it taking us so long to appreciate how big a problem it is? I mean, have we been embarrassed as being the other side of mental illness, i.e. the ones who don't recognise it, the ones who think we're healthy mentally ourselves? Are, are, have we been part of the problem in terms of turning a blind eye to things for a long time? Yeah, I think it's education as well. If if you're not educated in it, you you don't you won't 
you won't know what to look out for. Do you think also that the, the expression for many years, depression, was a catch-all for a number of different things? Yes, it's stress. People used to, the doctor, oh, you're stressed, and put it on a... Probably half of these people weren't stressed. Mm. Or you're depressed. Well, no, actually, I'm just feeling a bit low today. Fed up. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'm just a bit lonely, or I'm, there's something happening in my life, and I just need to be able to talk. So it's about just being able to give people the opportunity to open up, and you just sit there and listen. They're just, just a friend. And you probably find that a lot of people, that's that's all they need. They don't need to see a psychiatrist or psychologist. Or, mm-hmm. They just need someone to know that what they're saying and thinking is completely normal. You will get people that are mentally ill and they need medication and they've got a chemical imbalance or there's something wrong that they need medical help. But that's different from... An illness is different from your mental health. And that's where people are getting really confused. And everybody has mental health. Hmm. It's, uh, you know, I just, I, I think it's something that's hugely important now because it, certainly it was, a, it was a phrase that was used and it was used fairly glibly again. Oh, you're depressed, you've got depression mm. and they'd bung you a bottle of pills and that was it. And there was no real talk about why do you feel the way you feel, what's happened is there something that's triggered it? Is it something which is either caused because of a, 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 a kind of metaphysical way mm-hmm. where you've got another ailment physically that's affecting you mentally, that kind of thing? Like you saying, footballers are, are prime for that because if you're a footballer, you want to play football. If you're sat in a, a treatment table for the next six, seven, eight weeks of four or five months, you know, it must drive you absolutely mad. But Bill, this if you should now sit up and take notice because it's happening too often now. Yeah, but you know the problem, Jerry, and I'm going to be, again, I'm going to be cruel about this. It's all too easy now for the people who should have been dealing with it from the first place to jump on a bandwagon and hijack it. And for me, what they need to do is they need to work hand in hand with charities like Back On Side and Libby and various other charities, yeah. not just Libby's charity, but other charities, but let them be front and centre with it. Don't jump on this bandwagon and claim all the kudos uh, and all the glory for it, because frankly, you've been laxed at it and you haven't done it properly and you haven't dealt with it, because if they had, Libby wouldn't be sat here just now talking about a charity she had to set up. Sorry, and that no, no, might, no, it's, but that's the truth of the you. matter. We should all be working the SFA, PFA, SPA. We should all be working together. We, It's clear that when we speak to a lot of players, we'll say to them, have you approached X, Y and Z? And they'll say no, because if we do, they've got a fear. Their head's in such a bad place at that time that it comes down to trust. They want to be able to speak to somebody and know that there's no association. It's not going to go anywhere. It's going to stay within that phone call. And if they go to say the SFA or the PFA, the feedback we're, we're getting is, well, they'll tell our manager and then we're going to be taken off the pitch because our mental health and we're going to have to sit on the bench or we're going to, they're going to think less of us and we're going to be dropped. When actually the, the best place for that person at the time is on the pitch because that's where they forget everything. And, uh, you know, can I just make a point here? <laughs> mental health problems don't exclude anybody. They're not discriminatory. No, Managers and coaches have probably got mental health problems that a lot of them may not own up to or might not recognise. So this is a this is a situation that will benefit everybody potentially. And another another thing I'm going to say is there's a lot of drugs within football, and the way people 
deal with that and talk about it is that it's con it's just straight away, oh, they've got too much money or mm. this or that. Actually, we need to look at why they're doing it. Because I would say 100% the reason <clears throat> is they're, they're dealing with a mental health issue and they're using drugs and alcohol to mask it, to hide from it. So, yes, if they get caught, they're, they're taking a huge risk, but that just shows how low they are. That they're at a point where... I, I think you've hit on a very good thing as well, and I can speak from example of people that I've known in the music industry mm -hmm. for many, many years, and a lot of it has downtime. And a lot of footballers have a lot of downtime. But more than that, you know, there is this, there is this pressure that is constantly on them where... Again, the structure can sometimes be a positive thing, but it can be a negative thing because they can't do certain things that other people can do because they're restrained because of the, who they are and, and what they do. Friends. Fake yeah. friends. Oh, that's right, yeah. That would quite happily take, 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 and then maybe when their career starts going downhill, you'll see them disappearing, but they, they, don't, they don't appreciate what these guys are going through mm. and... They just disappear and then they're left on their own, and that's that's a huge thing as well because that's a trust thing. Yeah, the prime example for that bill is probably Paul Gascoigne. Well, yeah. remember, and his heyday with Jimmy Five Bailey. Let me let me tell you something. Bearing in mind that before I came back to Scotland, I'd spent twelve years working for a radio station in Newcastle, and got to know a lot of Newcastle players very very well, and got to within nodding in terms of Gaza, seeing him around the town and things like this. And I remember one particular night where the boy was out, and this is absolutely true, and he was seen in a bar by me and two or three other people. And it was obvious he didn't want to go any further. And they were, come on, come on, come on, we'll go, we'll go, we'll go. No, no, I'm going home, I'm going home. And he just pulled out a roll of money that would have choked a donkey and gave it to them and says, go on, you just have a night out. And it was easier just to buy his peace and quiet than it was to actually just say, no, look, I've had enough, I'm away. Mm -hmm. That's See what not I mean? just within yeah. football, that's within all industries where someone's in, in a high-profile job. I'm fortunate that I don't have any friends, <laughs> so from that point of view, I don't have to worry about that stuff. Well, how has the PFA responded to you? No, I'll be honest. Um, we've, we've not really had any dealings with them. I met them once, and that's when I first set it up. And they said they would be in contact with us because they thought it was a good idea. We've never heard from them since. When was that? When did you speak to them? Oh, that would be back in 2017, I think. See, I think things are progressing. I think that the PFA... Was it Fraser you dealt with? No. No. Fraser's a man, and I think now, in 2018, they have to take... They have to take action. They have to do something. I seem to be doing something... No, right. no, no, don't say seem to be doing something well, because do, being seen to be doing something's a PR exercise. Okay, they have which to do something. They have to do something. Right. But here's the thing, Jerry. Right. If somebody's the man or somebody's the woman or whoever, it shouldn't take them two years to appreciate what needs to be done and why it needs to be done. Because mm -hmm. how many people have gone into crises in that two year period? We get a lot of feedback from players that they won't contact the PFA out of fear. Um, and that's where I think that charities like us. Not just my charity, there's lots of mental health charities out there. We should be all working together. So we, we've got a crisis line. We have, and I had I tried to contact a certain body um, regarding a, a manager, actually, um, who was in a bad way, and I was on my way to him, and he ended up taken to hospital, and he was kept in, and I contacted him to ask, like, what can you do? We're closed on a Sunday. 
um, actually we don't work with it's a junior club we don't work with junior clubs which is ridiculous we should they're still part of Scottish football mm. um, so had we not been there this, I don't think this guy would have been here and I think he'll, he'll, he talks openly on Twitter about it as well what we've done for him um, so they, they should be we don't we, we pay for everything back on side pays for all counselling nobody it doesn't matter if a footballer's mm. earning a huge amount of money or we cover the cost because nobody should be that shouldn't come into consideration right I'm running out of time tonight. I'd like you to come back again because despite the fact you were terrified before we started, I can see you've warmed to the whole thing now. Before I finish uh, with you, let me ask you if people, because I'm assuming it's funding through donations and fundraising and things like that. Right. Please tell us how people can donate and how they can help in terms of financially helping you and supporting you because it's something that needs to happen. Just, they can go onto our website, which is www.backonside.co.uk. They can donate through Just Given. They can contact us on all social media where we are live 24-7 all the time. If somebody wants to put an event on for us or like, we're, we're there, to, we can help as well. We've got the contacts as well. We okay. work with a lot of players and ex-players. Right. I'm going to get you in another night for a bit more talk and a longer where we'll, we'll be completely committed to this. Uh, and talk more about it. But in the meantime, thanks for coming in. No, I, I hope it wasn't as traumatic as you <laughs> thought it was originally going to be. Um, but thank you for that. Uh, Libby Emerson from Back On Side talking to us. Don't forget the website. If you want to help them, if you want to contribute, if you want to uh, make some donation or you may want to help them in some kind of fundraising capacity, uh, they'd always be happy to hear from you. Um, it's an important issue and it's an important issue that's going to get more and more important and it's not going to go away. Uh, and we will continue to feature it on Talking Football. We'll be back in just a minute and we'll get back to the national team and bash them around for a wee bit longer as well here on Rock Sport. If you're a fan of Scottish junior football, then Just the Juniors is a must-listen for you here on Rocksport Radio. Nobody brings you more or better coverage of the junior game on radio than Bill Kilgour and John Redmond. Unrivaled knowledge, interviews with the managers, players and people who run junior football in Scotland. Every Friday, 8pm to 9pm, is when you can hear Scotland's flagship junior football show. Make sure you're listening. Just the Juniors, brought to you by Plumbase, the trade's Premier League team. Leave the winter outside with Plumbase's hottest offers in Feel the Heat brochure. Get yours at your local Plumbase branch. At Motorpoint, we put the super into car supermarket. We're here to save the day with a choice of over 7,000 low-mileage, nearly new cars. Find your next car in a flash with our lightning-fast service and same-day drive-away. Plus, with Motorpoint's price pledge, if you find the same car for less, we'll match the price and give you a £50 Amazon voucher. Visit Motorpoint Glasgow today, just two minutes from Junction 3 of the M74. T's and C's apply. See website for details. The list of things you need to do gets longer at this time of year, whether that's for the house or in your business. So take one thing off your list right now. Your septic tank could need emptied. 
Let Grant Henderson Tankers empty your septic tank in the home or work, farm, factory or workshop at very competitive rates. We are septic tank specialists, experienced, safe and dedicated to environmental safety with our own licensed disposal site. Find out more at wemovesh.it or call 01698 284 987. Grant Henderson Tankers, let the experts manage your waste. William, Pamela and Anthony were sold investments by banks and ended up losing money. Luckily, they contacted Goodwin Barrett and were able to claim back a total of £65,500. If you've lost money on an investment sold by a bank, even if you no longer have it or the paperwork, just text GOOD to 6677 to discover how much you could be Old. That's good to double six treble seven. You don't need a claims management company to make a complaint, and if unsuccessful, you can refer it free to the financial ombudsman. Love music, live sport, talking football with Bill Young and Jerry Collins on Rock Sport Radio. Right, folks, back to the national team. And we're going to speak to Daniel Gray, author and Nutmeg magazine host, uh, who's going to talk to us about something which I find extremely interesting. In fact, I found the whole show tonight interesting, apart from the first half hour when it was just you and I. I got bored then. But, <laughs> Is that because your team got beat? We spoke right, about your team. Don't start. Don't start with that nonsense. You're a fortnight late with that. No, night. I've not seen you. Uh, I know. Daniel, thank you for coming on. I'm sorry about the delay, but as you, you probably heard, it was a fairly emotive subject and one that I think we need to give uh, proper time to. And that's not to say that we don't want to give you proper time, uh, but I don't know how many ways we can cut up last night's performance. But thank you for being patient. No, thanks for having me. No, you're absolutely right about the, the previous issue you had on. Funnily enough, I was interviewing the great Andy Ritchie the other day for the Nutmeg podcast, and we talked a lot about mental health in that and the, the lack of help of available to players when Andy was a footballer and how much help it would have been for him. So I'm glad that these things are happening to help those in the game and to help those of us that watch the game um, talk about those things. So no, by all means, give that issue as much time as you can. Daniel, I, I, I still want to talk to you about something which I find extremely interesting. Uh, and I know that you've recently interviewed historian David Goldblatt and yeah. uh, a number of different points have been put in front of me about... Uh, where Scottish football now sits and theories behind why it sits in the position it does. Maybe you could expand on that a little bit for us. Yeah, well, I think that was an interesting uh, episode of the Nutmeg podcast because you had two Englishmen talking about the Scottish game for, for at least half of it. I've lived up here for 15 or 16 years now. Um, so I've always been, in some ways, an outsider looking in. And David, uh, as part of a big book about the world game, has a good few pages on Scotland and is you know very affectionate towards the Scottish game and talks to me about the place... The Scottish game's place now in the modern world, as as modern football moves on and it moves into far eastern markets and 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 different things like that. He, you know, I was asking him questions about where where is Scotland. We know the 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 history of Scottish football is unparalleled. The culture of Scottish football is as strong as ever, I think, and the authenticity and all of those things. But where is the the national team and its recent failures within all of that? And and you have to conclude it's being left behind and a lot of that is to do with the globalization of the game and the fact that players from all over are, are, you know 
uh, playing in, in all of the, the, the traditional European leagues. There's all these things that are impacting on, on Scottish football that we don't perhaps see here because we're just talking about SFA things and all of these usual arguments that are coming up and change the manager and all of, of this stuff. It, it's, David, in that podcast, gave it a wider context, I suppose, and it, it does good sometimes to, to look beyond the borders. What kind of conclusions did, did David come to having done this book and having researched it all and looked at the various aspects of it? What, what, what did he think were the main, what was the main propensity of why we are where we are? He really felt, and this has been said a lot and you'll see it a lot today on Twitter, that the, the big thing for Scotland now is to look to Iceland. And I know we're probably getting sick of hearing that and saying that, but um, it's all about... Uh, getting its own identity back in some ways and by that I mean, dare I say it, in the same way that England, uh, the England team under Gareth Southgate has managed to get this playing identity back and this talk of a sort of modern England a multi, uh, multicultural modern England and it's taken the fans along with it and I never thought this would happen with the England team a few years ago I could, could not be bothered with them really but and, and I, I think it's part of that package so it's looking to smaller nations to bring this strong identity back so you know what Scotland are all about. I watched Northern Ireland last night when Scotland had gone two or three down and the buzz at Windsor Park last night. So did half the Tartan army. Yeah, not surprised. (laughs) But the way they they play to the strengths, they're so much more than the, 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 the parts, you know, the sum of the parts, it, it's, it's a fantastic thing and, and you can, so it's possible and it's about strategy and, and continuity and, and things, whereas Scotland games, to me as an outsider, just seem, and, and David felt the same, just seem to drift from game to game. See, Bill, part of the thing for me with the Scotland as well is, is where they play the game. Now, Daniel there mentioned Windsor Park. Windsor Park is like Tynecastle. The fans are on top of you and it creates an atmosphere. Scotland play at Hamden Park where there's no atmosphere. The fans are too far away. There's like an actual running track around the stadium. The fans are too too far away, Daniel, to create any atmosphere. I mean, it has been loud, though, hasn't it? When you scored the, against England the second goal a couple of years ago, people talk about that being the loudest they've experienced in a stadium and, and the walls shaking. So it is possible to be an extremely loud place, but at the same time, when it's quiet, boy, it's quiet, and when people understandably are leaving early and things, that just saps yeah. the soul from the players. I've experienced that as a Middlesbrough fan on many occasions. Yeah, because the fact is now England are now taking their games on the road, Bill. Their next international tonight was at Southampton. So they're now taking their games on the road, where the parts are maybe 30,000. So they forfeit cash for atmosphere now. They'll go to St James's Park, they'll go to St, uh, St Mary's down at Southampton. They're now taking the game around the country, where the fans will generate great atmosphere, which makes it for a good game. I think Scotland, Hamden Park, and we've spoken about this before, Bill, it's no right. But here's the thing, and you're absolutely right, Jerry. but this is a point I made last night, and, and Hugh jumped to Ian Maxwell's defence, and, and that's fine, but for me, Ian Maxwell's a master of the statement. He comes out and makes statements at key times when... It kind of diffuses situations, but nothing ever seems to come of them. For example, you know, it took too long for me to the, conclude the business with Queen's Park about buying the stadium. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. The second thing is, 
he came out as soon as that was mooted and said, we have to make the experience of watching football for the Scottish fan. You know, we have to make it more enjoyable and we have to do better at it. And we have to look at redeveloping Hamden and making it a better all-round experience for the fans. Now, again, you don't expect this to happen overnight. It can't because it's going to cost money. Mm -hmm. But you see, if people have got the vision put in front of them and a timeline, then they'll buy into it. There's nothing worse than people being kept in the dark. You know that yourself. How many times do players say to you, you know, well, what, what was, you know, no, you've never told us this and that, and the next thing, I get it every day and here with people that say, well, I didn't hear that, nobody told us that, and I'm going, well, you're right, you know, that's our fault. But you've got, if you want to get people to buy into things, you have to give them a vision of what they're buying into. I think you would agree with that, Daniel. Absolutely. I mean, I, I speak foremost as a fan and secondly as a, as a writer. And there are, there are many initiatives that um, organisations or football clubs can enact to make going to the game a more enjoyable uh, experience. But the key thing remains the team's performance. Nothing galvanises the fans like the team having a go. And we know as followers of Scotland, whoever we follow, that we're not going to be the best in the world. But when the team has a go, when it tears into every tackle, when it flies forward, whenever it's possible, the crowd get going. And no, no amount of marketing campaigns or initiatives or statements can halt that age-old fact that if the team gives everything, the crowd gives it back, and then you have an occasion. Daniel, going back to David Goldblatt and the book that he's written, is there any evidence to show that the old argument, and it is an argument that is drawn like a dagger every so often, is there any evidence to support the fact that people say we've got too too many foreigners playing in Scotland these days? I don't think so. I I think... Um, you know, you have to be careful with, with, with the, the, the lines you go down on that one. But in general, it's been a, a positive experience throughout the, the British game. It's certainly enriched the game um, in, in England and, and has really rubbed off in the type of... But has it depleted, has the, it national depleted the national team? I think, I think that's an inevitable consequence that, that's of globalisation, isn't it? If you're bringing in workers, players from other places, um, and then your players aren't going and playing elsewhere, then that's an inevitable consequence. And you kind of take it with the, the rough, with the smooth. You love the excitement of a foreign signing. And ultimately, yes, the national team is going to suffer from that. We've seen that across the world. The key is to turn it into an advantage, again, in the way England have managed to do by, by learning from what the culture that's brought into the game. Jerry, I just think England's on the crest of a wave now, Daniel, right? They've now went 15 games undefeated. And what they're doing to galvanise it all, Bill, is they're taking it on the country. They've now got the whole nation behind them. Now, the people that live in Southampton or the people that live in Newcastle can't get to Wembley. It becomes a dear item if you want to take your two yeah. kids to, to go to Wembley. It costs a lot of money. They need, maybe need to stay overnight. But the fact now, England now realise we'll take this around the country and we'll show all the English fans this is, this is the team we've got. And they'll all turn out. It'll be a full house everywhere they go. And they've now galvanised that. 
And I think, of course, uh, I'm saying all this as well, Jerry. But England, could, wait, wait till they go one nil down to Kosovo later, and I'll, I'll eat all my words. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> let me ask you this, Daniel, because it seems to me that we have a polarised support as well now for Scotland, in as much as politics seem to be playing a part uh, in our national game in terms of who supports the national team as opposed to who doesn't. It does feel like that, and again, I'm a bit of an outsider. I'm something of a footballing nomad in Scotland. I go to watch Hibs most of all because I live near them, but I travel to watch junior games, uh, Highland League games, Lowland League, and so I, I am very much an outsider in all of this, but it, it does feel like that. Um, even in the 16 years I've lived here, there's less support for the national team. I think that's clear to see, and, and club has definitely conquered country in, in many, um, in most cases, I would say. I think that's that's generally true of football, but I've certainly felt that waning off of interest, which will happen if you go so long without qualifying for tournaments. You know, there are a lot of young people who've never had that exciting experience of qualifying for a major tournament, although they experienced a bit of it with the women's team um, in the summer. Dan- that's horrible. Daniel, I would never have believed to Bill to help me tonight that I didn't know that more turned up for the rugby, a send-off for the World Cup rugby at Murrayfield than what turned up at Hamden. 21,000 more. I, I would never have believed that, Bill. Scotland's a football nation. We're not a rugby nation. So that, that tells it, you... It much... remains a football nation. It's just that the heart perhaps has shifted more to the club sides than the national team at the moment. Um, whether that's a, a permanent trend, we'll see. But you see, if you think about it as well, guys, the, the, there's a very, very good catalyst in there for why that would be the case. Scotland rugby team is about to go to the World Cup. <laughs> now, if Scotland's football team was going to the World Cup, you can guarantee they could be playing anybody, no. and you'd be getting full houses because yeah. there would be that there would be that sense of national achievement and national pride. No, but Bill, the, the, that was a friendly. Uh, that was a send-off yeah, yeah, game. Yeah, but it to, was a send-off to the World Cup. Yes, but the we Scotland, are going to the World yeah, Cup. but the Scotland game was a chance of getting to a European Championships. That was still a big, big game. But we don't win big, big games. That's why people don't turn up. No, we don't. And that's that's the point. But I, you know, I don't know. How do we turn this round, Daniel? What 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 do we need to do? You've highlighted where the problems are. You've highlighted that it's not sack the manager, it's not blame the SFA, what, what do we do? And surely uh, the SFA particularly have to play a major role in this. I think it has, to, it has to be a case of keeping the faith with the changes that have been made because players are being produced now. It's often a, a barometer is used of we've got enough players playing in England and that's increasing in the top teams in recent years from, from Andy Roberts and John McGinn downwards. So I would say keep a bit of faith in what is going on because there are many brilliant coaches out, of, out, out there. The thing is we need more coaches and more access to facilities and all of these um, those things are happening in co- countries like Iceland it's it's very hard to be able to get a game of football for for, for free as in fact as I think Chris Boyd was saying last night and we're seeing a trend we've picked this up in a couple of the podcasts one with um, Stuart Cosgrove of the game moving away from working class young kids because they simply don't have access to a car or time or money to be able to play the game so there's there's a lot of big thinking that needs to go on thinking is way beyond me but I wouldn't give up all hope you're still producing footballs and you still have per capita I think the richest footballing culture um, in Europe 
Well, I spoke to someone a wee while ago who said there was irrefutable proof, and he put it in front of us, that football actually was invented in Scotland. Uh, Indeed, there's a there's a piece in the next issue of of, of Nutmeg magazine about that. I would, as a Yorkshireman, I couldn't uh, I couldn't possibly comment. I think Sheffield is the centre of the footballing world, but I know that that uh, debate certainly <laughs> rumbles on. And I think what the Scottish game could do a bit better is is sell that story more and 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 play on that authenticity and that pride and just be a bit more positive about the strength of you the, know the Daniel. The I've I've got to tell you, you would you were. Very, very credible until you said Sheffield's the centre of football. And then all of a sudden, everybody started looking around the room thinking, did he really say that? <laughs> did so well. Did so, well. <laughs> so are you an owl or are you a blade? Which one? No, I'm neither, actually. I'm, uh, Middlesbrough's my team. I was born in North Yorkshire, but, but I, I researched it uh, well, once, uh, and uh, Sheffield, I just felt, was the home of football. One of the, one of the, so you're very good. lucky in as you have one of the greatest chairmen, I think, anywhere Absolutely in football. Right. Steve Gibson is a remarkable man. I know Steve. Uh, I was in the North East for a number of years, and that's a man who really has put his money where his mouth is. Uh, sadly, he's not always got best value for it uh, from his team, but he's a man who's stuck with it, and he's done it purely because he loves uh, he loves Middlesbrough Football Club. Oh, we're, we're absolutely we're well aware when things like Baltimore Wanderers and, and Bury are happening. That could have been us, us, and in 1986 it almost was until he came in. So I've seen some wonderful times, courtesy of Steve Gibson, and, and he's steadying the ship at the moment so that those kind of things don't happen to us. But yeah, we're, we're aware how lucky we've been, I think. Listen, before I let you go, because one of my guests on Thursday is going to be Chris Doolan, and I believe Chris is doing a Nutmeg Live event on Thursday uh, with you and Rose yeah. Riley. Tell us yeah, a bit about absolutely. it. Mono in, Mono in Glasgow, the cafe bar in, in the Merchant City, um, we're having an event from 7 o'clock, a night of football and music. So we've got Rose Riley, the and arguably the greatest Scottish women's player of all time. I'm interviewing her. We've got a bit of football poetry. We've got Chris, as you say, uh, journalist Alan, Alan McConnell, Alan Russell from Supporters Direct, and Junior Mendes, uh, St Mirren, ex-player, now sports scientist. They'll be discussing the matchday experience from their own point of view. Then we've got an interview with one of Jerry's old teammates, Vic Casul, the legendary Vic Casul. And another panel about music and football with members of Mogwai, Bell and Sebastian. So it's a real mixed event, should be of interest to a lot of people, and only only nine quid to get in, and okay. you can't get much for nine quid these days. I hope it goes well, and thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you, Jerry, for your company tonight. It's been a... a it's one of those shows that I walk away from feeling satisfied we've yes. achieved something. Uh, back tomorrow with Ali Graham. Join me then, please. Love music. Live sport. Talking football with Bill Young and Jerry Collins on Rock Sport Radio.